Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. So glad again to just open God's Word and jump right back into Tuesday leading up to the crucifixion. I hope you're blessed, and I pray that you were able to touch base with the first part because, man, these are jam-packed stuff. When you look at all the information, all the conversations, the challenges, the rebukes, the final lessons that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples, it's all here on Passion Week. So today, this is Podcast 91, Part 2 of Tuesday. Now, in Part 1, we looked at the first lesson when Jesus was talking about the withering fig tree. And then we transitioned and we saw a few other challenges that he faced with the Sanhedrin when they questioned him about the authority of Jesus. Remember, and he responded about John the Baptist. And then we saw the first parable. This is going back to Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, about the two sons in the vineyard. And then he teaches him two other parables, the one about the vine dressers, and that's in all the synoptic gospels. And then after the, the, the vine dressers, Jesus gives a third parable about a marriage feast in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And that's where we ended on podcast 90 and that that was the first part and now we jump into part two and we're looking now at the second challenge and this is where the pharisees question jesus about the taxes and now this is a significant one because what we're going to see is rather than them continue to attack jesus on a theological framework they decide to go political with jesus and this is found in Matthew 22, 15 through 22, Mark 12, 13 through 17, and Luke 20, 20 through 26. So we're going to pick things up here in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, where it says, So they, the Pharisees, they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. Now, a couple things here in verse 20, right off the bat. Remember, they've been trying to get at Jesus for some time, arrest him, kill him. They're afraid of the crowd. So the phrase here that they watched him and sent spies, it means that they were guarding him. And they, in Matthew 22, verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians who pretended, meaning, meaning they were presenting themselves falsely, meaning they were covering up their real motives as why they were being there among Jesus. They were trying to be sincere, but notice it says here that they were trying to catch him in something that he said in Mark 12, verse 13. They were trying to trap him in his talk so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. Now, as we know, the Sanhedrin up to this point, they have failed miserably to try to link anything blasphemous uh, about Jesus or what he said, anything that was blasphemous according to the law, which explains why they were shifting away, as I mentioned earlier, from theological debate with Jesus to a political one. They now want to catch him in making a treasonous claim. Now, to do this, they had to employ a certain tactic here. They were trying to become friends with him, associate with him, show the crowd that, oh, we really like this guy too. So they're pretending to honor him 
and admire his teaching. So notice in verse 21, so they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. So now remember before they couldn't say the authority of John the Baptist came from God and he was a prophet therefore because the crowd knew him to be a, a prophet and he claimed that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, the lamb of God. So here they're saying, you are the standard. That's what that word means here to teach rightly. You are the norm. You are the standard. You show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So notice the major contradiction that has shifted just because they're trying to catch Jesus. So verse 22, they pose this question now. They want to get the gotcha question in front of the audience of people in the temple. Is it lawful? Meaning, is it permitted for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, remember, on Friday, they're going to be saying to Pilate, we have no other king but Caesar. Now, we know that the Jewish people were unfairly taxed by the Romans. And at this time, Tiberius Caesar from AD 14 to 37 had been in power for many years and drove many Jews into poverty and also death due to the excessive taxation. So they knew that the Jews around them that were believing in Jesus and supporting Jesus did not like the taxes. So here they have believed, right, that they placed Jesus in a yes or no situation. This is known as a closed-ended question. Now, if he sides with paying taxes, then the zealots would rise up and oppose Jesus and the crowd, possibly, more than likely. But if Jesus comes out against paying taxes, then the Romans would have to seize him and possibly kill him for insurrection. Now, verse 23 says, but he perceived their craftiness, Matthew 22, verse 18. He was aware of their malice. And he says to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the thing that are God's. So if you notice here, Jesus responds by telling the people to give to what belongs to the government and to give to what belongs to God. See, since we are made in the image of God and all belongs to him, we are to honor him above all else. Clark puts it this way, quote, it establishes the limits, regulates the rights and distinguishes the jurisdiction of the two empires of heaven and earth. The image of princes stamped on their coin denotes that temporary things belong to their government. The image of God stamped on the soul denotes that all its faculties and powers belong to the Most High and should be employed in His service, end quote. Now, if you recall, the night Jesus was betrayed, the Sanhedrin brought in false witnesses who accused Jesus of what? of what? Not paying taxes. In Luke 23, verse 2, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So here now in verse 26, they weren't able in the presence of people to even catch Jesus and what he said, but they marveled at his answer and they became silent. So once again, Jesus's response far exceeds the Sanhedrin's ability to entangle him. So they're not going to stop there. The Pharisees up to this point have failed. So now it's the Sadducees' responsibility and they're going to question Jesus on the resurrection. 
Now, this is found in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 22, 23 through 33, Mark 12, 18 through 27, Luke 20, 27 through 40. So let's look at Luke's account here in Luke chapter 20, verse 27. Now remember, this is the third challenge, and these are the Sadducees who are going to try to entrap Jesus and hopefully get some type of accusation brought against him so that he can get arrested and possibly crucified. It says there in verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny, literally speak against or oppose that there is a resurrection. And they asked, literally, they intensely demanded him to answer this question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as their wife. So here we see the other half of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees. They step in to try to trick Jesus now. Pharisees couldn't do it, so they try to do it. Now, up to this point, many people in the audience, many of the Jews, they believed in the resurrection of Lazarus. You go back to John eleven forty five, 45, John 12, 10, and 11. So in an attempt to disprove the resurrection, the Sadducees came up with this ridiculous scenario about a family of brothers, and they all died, and they left behind this wife who had no children. Now, they based their argument from the Leveret, the brother-in-law marriage uh, laws that was recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10. Now, you might be thinking, why this argument, though? Because it kind of seems like a, a lame argument, especially if they're using this ridiculous scenario. Well, that phrase earlier that we read, those who deny that there is a resurrection, the Sadducees believe the Pentateuch didn't teach a resurrection. So they believe they were strict hearers and interpreters of the Pentateuch. And when they read through it, there's no mentioning of the resurrection. Therefore, they don't believe there's, there's an eternal bliss or punishment that's awaiting people. They only howl to a literal belief in the Torah. And if you recall, the Sadducees come from the priestly line of Zodok in Ezekiel 44, verse 15. So to them, this was a strong argument because they're saying, look, we know the Pentateuch. We look at a strict interpretive reading of it, and we do not see any mentioning of a resurrection. And so Jesus in verse 34, he responds to them and he says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal, meaning they're similar to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. That sounds confusing here, what Jesus is trying to say to them. But what he does in essence is he's pointing to angels who do not marry as proof that in the afterlife, humans will not be given to marriage. One is angels do exist and they live in heaven. And then he compares or it's analogous that to humans who likewise, when they're in heaven, will not be given to marriage. Therefore, he's in essence saying there's no need for marriage or procreation since we, li we live on in eternity. So marriage, he's saying, in essence, is an institution on earth and it's not an institution in heaven. Then he says here in verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So then Jesus transitions and makes these statements about Moses pointing to a portion of the Torah. So one is using 
Moses, who's the father of the law, he knows their interpretive rendering of the Torah, Exodus 3, verse 6. So he points to that portion of the Torah that the Sadducees held to be authoritative to confound them. In the record of Mark, he says that Jesus responds to him, says, have you not read in the book of Moses? That sounds like an insult, but what he's saying is your rendering, your interpretation is wrong. You believe that you know it. So by referring to Exodus, the, the, the God of Abraham, the great I am, he's showing how God is the God of the living. So when you take an account of this and the beliefs of the patriarchs in this God of the living in Job 19 and Psalm 16 verses 9 through 10 and Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, he's pointing to the fact that the patriarchs are still living because they are living in heaven and God will fulfill his covenantal promises to them. So all of these are implications of the resurrection of the dead in what we refer to as the Old Testament. Now, one commentator writes, quote, In a Hebrew sentence of this kind, there was no verb expressed, and Jesus was implying that the present form of the verb I am must be supplied as in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, showing that God still said that he was the God of Abraham centuries after his death, with the implication that Abraham was still alive and able to worship him. The God who was Abraham's God during his lifetime would not let death interrupt the relationship, but would resurrect him, end quote. So now verse 39, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The Pharisees can't get Jesus, and now even the Sadducees, they can't even put Jesus in his place. They tried to refute him based on scripture, but yet he uses scripture to reveal their own ignorance and their pride, leaving the entire crowd astonished. So you think that they would have enough on Tuesday, but now we enter our fourth challenge regarding what is the greatest commandment. And this is found in Matthew 22, 34 through 40 and Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. So let's jump right into Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, he's literally asking this question, teacher, what kind is the greatest commandment? Now, in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, Mark records, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well. He wants to turn around and ask Jesus this question. So right after the Sadducees failed to entrap Jesus, a scribe, a lawyer who is an expert in the law, steps in to see if Jesus can answer what the greatest commandment in all the law is. So he gets to the point. Now, we got to understand at this point, my friends, this is probably the most brilliant of the minds at this stage, more so than the Pharisees and more so than the Sadducees. Now, if you remember, the Pharisees had developed 613 laws in total. And the way they divided them up is they said there were 248 positive laws and there are 365 negative laws. And then on top of that, you had the legendary interpretations of both rabbis, Shammai and Halal, who had debated over these matters uh, a lot. And so they, they provided some instrumental takes in shaping the views of the first century Jews. So you can imagine this scribe, this lawyer, he knows all this stuff backwards and forwards. So to him, this whole issue about taxes, this whole issue about the authority of Jesus, this whole issue about the resurrection, he doesn't want to get into those issues. He wants to look at the law itself and see how Jesus responds. And so he's going to test him 
but we're going to see probably a little bit different tactic. And I believe the intent of this scribe and lawyer, there seems to be an element of honesty and sincerity that comes with him. Now, notice in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hero Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Jesus doesn't get sucked into the classifications the Sanhedrin designated for these various laws. He immediately looks to the God who is worthy of worship. And then he announces the most important laws according to what God said in Deuteronomy. Now, of course, the scribe was trying to get Jesus to, to disregard certain laws, right, over others. John Grasmick in his commentary of Mark writes, quote, He began with the opening words of the Shema from the Hebrew word here, the first word of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This creed, according to Numbers 15, 37 through 41, Deuteronomy 6, 49, Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 21, was recited twice daily, morning and evening, by devout Jews. It asserted the basis of the Jewish faith, the Lord, Hebrew, Yahweh, namely our God, Israel's covenant-keeping God, the Lord is one, that is, unique, according to Mark chapter 12, verse 32. So Jesus first recognizes the significance in the recitation that the Jews did every day, twice a day. And so in verse 30, he then says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, meaning your whole control center, and with all of your soul, your self-conscious life, and with all of your mind, meaning your whole thought process, your thinking, and with all of your strength, recognizing your bodily powers. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then Matthew 22, verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus starts with the Shema, and then he quotes from Leviticus 19, verse 18, to stress the connection between loving God and loving others. In Mark 12, verse 32, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this brilliant scribe who had been trained in advanced studies of the law heard directly from the Logos himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, spoke to him and showed him that true love for God and for others are the two greatest commandments. Now, afterwards, the scribe, he acknowledged that Jesus was correct and he knew at that moment not to challenge him, the Bible says. Now, again, Jesus exposes how the religious leaders missed the importance of God's commandments. Their shallowness of the law was to their demise. But notice how Jesus responds to this scribe in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we see here a glimpse into this scribe who encountered the Logos himself, the God who spoke everything into existence, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is saying to him, you answered wisely. You're not far from the kingdom of God. I believe because of these words right here that unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees, this scribe was truly pursuing the truth. He understood the connection what Jesus said in Deuteronomy 6 to Leviticus 19. And then when Jesus spoke that truth, he responds saying, yes, that is true. 
Now, we don't know whether or not this scribe ever came to know Christ as king, but we do see this response that Jesus gave him that's recorded in scripture that he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. There are many people that we'll see later, particularly the the centurion, who recognize at the cross that Jesus wasn't truly the son of God. Now, the fifth challenge is on the Messiahship of Jesus. This is recorded in Matthew 22, 41 through 46, Mark chapter 12, 35 through 37, and Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44. So in Luke's gospel, verse 41 says here, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Mark 12, 35 says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, Jesus asked or he inquired them a question, verse 42, back to Luke, saying, What do you think? Meaning, what do you suppose? Who do you imagine the Christ is? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So now Jesus is challenging them and they give a response because Jesus now wants to focus on who he is and see what they're saying in regards to him. So Jesus takes the offensive at this point, right? He turns the question on the religious leaders. Now, he had asked the disciples, if you remember back in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 15, a similar question. Now, at this point of time, though, he's asking the question in the present tense to try and convince the Sanhedrin that he is indeed the Son of God. Now, in verse 43, he says to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? So this title, Son of David, is one of the greatest designations for the Messiah in the Old Testament. The Jews strongly held that Psalm 110 and 2 Samuel 7 were both messianic passages and that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. Now, according to the Sanhedrin, though, the Messiah would only be human, not divine. So this question that Jesus poses them, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, putting all this in the proper context, remember, Jesus had just responded to the scribe using the Shema, using the connection there to, uh, from the Shema to Psalm 110 verse 1, proving that my Lord Adonai is indeed the Messiah who is God, because only the Messiah is worthy to sit at the right hand of God, revealing the mystery of the Trinity to the three in one. So looking at Shema to Psalm 110, he's saying God is not just one, modalistically speaking. He's teaching the Trinitarian uh, belief of the Godhead, that is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, M.S. Mills in his commentary writes, quote, So this verse reads literally, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Messiah then is man because he is David's son, yet he is God because he sits at the right hand of Yahweh, God the Father. David recognizes him as deity by calling him my Lord. So the Messiah's progenitor, under inspiration of the Spirit, pays tribute to his divine origin. Clearly, the Messiah must be both God and man, end quote. In his commentary, Wearsby writes, When he was ministering on earth, Jesus often accepted the messianic title Son of David throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The rulers had heard the multitudes proclaim him as the Son of David when he rode into Jerusalem. The fact that he accepted this title is evidence that Jesus knew himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God. As God, he was David's Lord, but as man, he was David's son. 
For he was born into the family of David, according to Matthew 1, verse 1, and verse 20, end quote. So in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, after all the challenges on Tuesday, what does Jesus do? He silences the chief priests. He silences the elders in Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27. He silences the Pharisees and the Herodians in Matthew 22, 15 through 22. He silences the Sadducees in Matthew 22, 23 through 33. And even the smartest legal mind, he answers correctly what the greatest two laws are. And you know, my friends, when we evaluate this portion of Tuesday, where Jesus is being accused, Jesus is being entrapped, they're challenging him, they're questioning him. It got me thinking about our lives. And you think about the people that are challenging you perhaps and how you're responding. What difficulties are you going through in your life right now? And you're asking God to give you the strength that you need. And one of the things that we continue to encourage you here on this podcast is to be grounded in God's word that you understand his truth, that you live it out, let it sanctify you, let it cleanse you. The Bible says when you hide God's word in your heart, you will not sin against him. And so as I conclude this podcast, don't lose focus. Continue to be grounded, continue to be steadfast in your faith by not only exploring God's word, but letting God's word speak to you. May that be an encouraging word for you, my friends. I so appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the word of God.